Welcome back to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right as we continue in our historical series asking, how did we get here? I'm Thomas, here with Nick Don. Uh, before we dive into the content, we want to acknowledge that uh, it's been a while since we posted a new episode that is indirectly my fault. Uh, the last time we tried to record, <laughs> my uh, computer started to freeze. I tried to update the software and it just died. So I've been in the process of replacing the computer and trying unsuccessfully to recover the data so far. And then I was out of town and my kids got sick. So it has been uh, kind of a, a crazy couple of weeks, but that is by and large why we have not released anything for the past few weeks. Um, how have you been? Oh, I've, I've been just fine. There was also a holiday in there, I think, or two, at least one. Happy Thanksgiving, oh, everyone. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was that. Well, well that, that's why we didn't release it. We, we planned a holiday break. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, although we did try something new. Um, we The night that we were supposed to record and we didn't, we decided to pilot a Twitter Spaces event for our All the Rage at the Moment where we discussed the Thomas Accord controversy um, with Stephen Wolf. Uh, how do you think that went? Well, to be clear, the controversy is with Stephen Wolf. He did not actually show up to our Twitter spaces to discuss it with us, uh, which is unfortunate. He was free to. <laughs> we did put it on Twitter, um, but I think by that time he had he already blocked me, so he probably didn't see it. No. Well, Twitter is the is the digital public square. I've heard. I have heard that. Yeah, um, but I think we we decided following that that we we like the format of using Twitter Spaces as a way to talk about uh, at least to do our all the rage at the moment uh, installments, giving people a chance to listen live. And it was neat. We actually had some people jump on who had some some good contributions to make to the discussion. Yeah, well, people who were, you know, involved at various levels of, you know, kind of filling in background information on Accord prior to or, you know, in the midst of the story kind of blowing up. And so we should just very quickly summarize what the situation is and kind of the relevance for it, because it does, I think, in a big picture way, kind of fit into the subject of uh, this episode where we're discussing, we're kind of leaving off our historical overview of the last century's worth of development of the, the Christian far right and Christian right as it relates to American politics in general. Right. So, I mean, we've got the, the, the basics of the, the controversy are we've got Stephen Wolf, right, who's been uh, the subject of some conversation because he wrote the book, literally, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism, which has been getting a lot of attention on Twitter. Um, and he also was the co-host of an obscure podcast, Ars Politica, um, which it's so obscure that its numbers are similar to ours. <laughs> Very obscure podcast. Um, <laughs> after people had been talking about it, he recommended, uh, the book that his co-host edited, Thomas Accord had edited a book, um, who is my neighbor looking at historical um, examples of people answering that question in different ways. The book very strongly kinist in nature, or at least um, 
what's how do you describe it? Leaves open. Kenneth curious. <laughs> Can, yeah. <laughs> um, and so people started digging into his co-host, uh, Thomas Accord, and found some old blogs that were written and old uh, anonymous Twitter accounts, um, which had extremely racist and, and um, explicitly kinist uh, content in, in both the, the blog posts and the, the Twitter profile. Uh, so when it first came out that this was him, <laughs> Accord <laughs> released a statement saying, when this came to be, I tried to log on indicating that like, oh yeah, this is my account. And then, but then I couldn't get on. And so I realized, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe this wasn't my account after all, <laughs> this deeply racist thing. Um, more and more came out. So, some people who had dug in and dug some research and, and gone way back into the Wayback machine, um, done some real good uh, virtual sleuthing. Um, so then it comes out later. He says, oh yeah, actually that was my, my account. It was a really dark time in my life and I don't remember much of it. Um, sort of this non-apology apology. Um, and the reason it became so controversial is because you have this explicitly racist stuff tied to the author of this book for Christian nationalism, um, who has done a better job of hiding his racism in, in more respectable language. Um, but this caused a lot of people to really question uh, his connection with kinism and explicit racism. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, the, if you pull on any of the cords, it untangles in weird <laughs> directions pretty much all around. You know, Rod Dreher is involved because uh, Thomas Accord was the headmaster of a classical Christian academy that Rod Dreher's kids had gone to and where his wife worked. And apparently she um, resigned in disgust the second that the, the connection between Accord and the Tullius Audland account were made public. And from what I've heard, there were already some concerns among individuals at the school and kind of rumblings. And so, you know, the, the speed with which the, you know, the very first expose of, you know, here are the two or three data points that tie this Twitter account to Thomas Accord, you know, that first account comes out. Instantly, he is resigned as the headmaster of the school. They have taken down their faculty profile page. Um, apparently, it's in that time frame that Rod Dreher's wife uh, re resigns her position, which is um, not just a teacher. I think it was a it was some sort of administrative position in addition to teaching. And this this all happens within a twenty four hour period. And then it's only after that that first. Uh, Stephen Wolf and William Wolf both begin absolutely attacking and savaging anybody, and particularly conservatives, who are voicing criticisms of the content on this Tullius Odland Twitter account, um, with the idea that th this isn't even verified. How do you know that it's him? He, he hasn't said anything. And then the very first thing he publishes, after they get a, not a GoFundMe, but what's it called? A Give, Send, Go, which is like <laughs> right. the... GoFundMe for people who can't get hosted on GoFundMe. Um, so they, they get that set up and he, he posts this initial, you know, this, and it, it, it's unhinged reasoning in it. And uh, that was immediately recognized by a lot of people that, you know, this story of 
initially I thought that it was my account and then you know, I tried to log in and my password didn't work. And so I tried a password reset and the password reset didn't go to any email address that I own. Uh, and there, and, and that later he construes that as Twitter verified that this is not my account, but seemingly what he meant by that was I pushed reset password and the email did not go to like my primary email account or any email account that I can remember. But as it turns out, apparently he's got accounts littering the internet that he can't remember ever having created. So it, you know, it, it w- genuinely wouldn't surprise me if he in the past has created all sorts of, you know, Gmail pseudonyms based off of the weird Roman names that, you know, American founders like to write their uh, pamphlets under that kind of thing and just has genuinely forgotten that they ever existed. And so those are associated with Twitter accounts and maybe Blogspot accounts and maybe old live journal accounts, who knows? Uh, And and they've, they've just you know, fallen into disrepair over the, over the years. So his, you know, his racist rantings might be all over the internet at this point. Um, But, you know, so he construed that as Twitter, quote unquote, verified that this is not my account. Clearly that's not what happened. He didn't contact anyone at Twitter. Um, But then he also suggests, you know, there are a lot of people who want to do me and my, you know, people I'm associated with harm, so people can set up a fake Twitter account. So, you know, it was right. maybe it was some uh, leftist with a with a, a bone to pick who set this account up, which and the fact that he could write that. And then for several days or for at least, you know, uh, 24 to 48 hours, he and his cohorts are standing by this claim and continuing to raise funds for him to the tune of nearly fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, it's somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand. The last I saw it, um, yeah. which was around the time that his his almost mea culpa came out. So who knows how much it's grown since then? Because I don't, you know, I don't know that that would necessarily stop people from uh, supporting him because it's all just tribal anyway. And and then it was Rod Dreyer of all people who you know uh, also uh, credit to Alistair Roberts who did a lot of the digital sleuthing that you you referenced and put together, uh, you know and insurmountable case but part of that case involved a photograph that had been taken and posted on the the tullius Audland account uh several years ago and uh rod dreyer instantly recognized it as contain you know just in a tiny part of this picture is containing the logo of the academy where accord is a teacher and that was i think for most people you know, the the uh, a random picture taken in the basement of this obscure school building multiple years ago. Um, you know, you, you could say, well, that just shows how the depths to which the the leftists were willing to stoop to plan for the uh, takedown of the Christian nationalist project. It sh- should <laughs> it ever come to fruition? Uh, but most people were not willing to go that far on that limb. And so. Uh, at, at that point, he he kind of said, oh, "I I guess it was me." It, it, and we have to stop and consider, I think, several things here. First, the absolute dishonesty from this crowd, absent the the smoking gun evidence. Right? They were um, just completely lying about what had happened. Every, it, it, 
because we know that Stephen Wolf followed this account, interacted with this account um, in the past. So just completely lies about it until there's smoking gun evidence, in which case they're finally forced to come forward and say, okay, yeah, this is probably what happened. Um, so, so I think that's that's the big takeaway is just the, the utter dishonesty um, among them. And then their their sort of lack of apology and, and sweeping under the rug afterwards. But then how bizarre is it that the voice of reason in this thing is Rod Dreher, who we've talked about on the podcast, right? And as a matter of fact, he's the one who comes out and says, you guys, it was me who reported him to the school, right? People are, you know, online, they're, they're trying to blame all of these leftists for, you know, trying to tank Accord's career. And Rod Dreher's like, no guys, it was me. Like I recognize it immediately. Because he has a personal I, stake. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. It was literally right. a concerned parent. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, finally they're going after the right school board. <laughs> uh, after all of this. Um, but then like even, even Doug Wilson sort of distances himself from this a little bit, right? You know, and trying to redirect the conversation. Like, you know, it's bad if Doug Wilson's like, uh, you know, let's, let's redirect focus and not pay attention to this. Um, but what what it's and maybe this is something we we talk about further in a, in a different episode or later in this one, but the way that this whole Christian nationalism controversy has sort of redrawn some of the battle lines, even since we started our project with with this whole all the rage investigating the Christian far right, people that initially we would have considered far right and probably still do to some degree, people like. Um, you know, Kevin DeYoung and Andrew Walker and Rod Dreher, um, who now this this book on Christian nationalism comes out and they're saying, hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe this this is not a good thing, which is on one hand encouraging, right, that, that we're seeing uh, Neil Shenvey being another one um, sort of pushing back against Christian nationalism in Stephen Wolf's book. But on the other hand, my concern is, is, you know, I'm glad that these people are saying, hey, this is this is not a good project. There, there's 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 deep racist and, and, and sexist and kinist problems. But on the other hand, I'm concerned that this book has moved the Overton window so far to the right that some of these people are now seeming to be reasonable. <laughs> you know, that we're like right. sort of on the same team as Neil Shenvey and Rod Dreher and Kevin DeYoung. That feels weird to me. Yeah, and I think there's there's room for both concerns, or there's room for the both the concern and the recognition that like we're at a malleable moment in the composition of these ideological battle lines, right? And that that very much does relate to the portion of the historical narrative that we're going to go over tonight. Um, but I, I do want to drill down into a couple of elements of it. So we're going to be one of those podcasts where, you know, you get to 45 minutes and it's like, all right, now to the, to the main subject that we came to discuss tonight. But no, I think this is seriously um, uh, built in. And th thinking about, for instance, Doug Wilson's role in this, and his positioning in this, you know, uh, 
John Reasoner, who who joined us on our, our Twitter spaces and talked a bit, um, who's you know, and he was he was candid saying this in our spaces as well. He's he's coming from a much more conservative place than us, right? He's not on the on the far right by any means, but he's he's coming from a more conservative place than we are. Um, but you know, one of the emphases that he's had through all of this from the beginning of the Accord controversy is Kenneth's lie, and. And, and that makes it very difficult to actually say who is a Kenist and who is not, because right. within Christian conservatism, Kenism has become one of those third rail topics that if you know, they, they have learned that if they can be credibly accused of preaching Kenism versus just, you know, traditional values or, or some euphemism, that they, you know, before cancel culture was a thing, before deplatforming was a word that we all knew, that did happen even in these pretty right wing spaces, uh, and you can trace that back to to the nineties, the you know the nineties that we're going to be talking about, and some of the elements and associations between you know evangelicalism on the one cons- even conservative evangelicalism on the one hand, and those far right elements that verged into like white identity movements, Christian identity movements, militia movements, uh, the you know, and especially post Oklahoma City bombing when the federal government is you know is seriously concerned about domestic terrorism for, you know, about 30 seconds. But the, the, that awareness of having been even temporarily or briefly on the radar, um, of the federal government and, you know, the, the concern about their coming for our guns and it, it, it created a real atmosphere of paranoia. And so get drawing attention became, Drawing attention became anathema, right? If you draw in outside eyes and and make clear some of the things that that maybe some of us will say quietly, um, then we have to cut you off and exclude you from the group for the maintenance of the in group, right? And right. so Kenism right. became kind of that dividing line between sort of far right conservatism and straight out, you know, white identity or ethno-nationalism. And the fact that it rides exactly on that line, it kind of makes it an out category for both, right? Because you have, you know, in this country, we have out and out self-identified, you know, neo-Nazi groups and uh, white nationalist organizations, you know, not a ton, but they exist right there on the, on the radar of, um, the Southern Poverty Law Center, some of them uh, root back to the 90s we're going to be look, looking at. Um, and those groups look at, you know, your, even your very conservative Christians, including Kenists um, and people in Doug Wilson's orbit, and they see them as kind of soft and pathetic, right? Because they are I mean, they're Holocaust deniers. Like they, like they are so far to that to that fringe edge um, that they look at these sort of conservative Christians who go to church on Sunday and you know get uh, dressed up and listen to the pastor preach, and you know they're often you know one step away from being being cajoled by an FBI agent into plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan or something, right? Like, and so kinism for them is kind of like, yeah, kid, kiddie stuff, right? But then for the, 
uh, for your kind of just just traditional far right Christians, you know, someone you know with a 1689 in their bio or whatever, they look at Kinism and they're like, oh, you're kind of far, you're kind of close to those, you know, that to that radical edge, and so it does become like a very defining line that kind of you, you see why nobody wants to be painted as a Kinist, right? Sure. Like it 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 has both a ma- it has a sort of a maximal. Um, alienation a maximal disadvantage as a label and so it's one that even people who explicitly are kinists reject the label and therefore therefore kinists lie i think that that's the correct analysis of that and doug wilson rejects kinism explicitly he says that and he argues against it and he argues in it's so wiggly he's such a slippery uh character the way that he talks but um, he does try to tell people, don't be Kenists. Kenism is inaccurate understanding of the Bible and the categories and blah, blah, blah. Um, but also then he says these things to you like, uh, that, that's just the thing you said. But he's a – whatever. He's a sli- very slippery character. Um, but you never know. You cannot uh, trust the, the self-reporting of someone to say, I reject Kenism because, well, that's what a Kenist would say. Right. And so then you right. just have to sort of deal with their their categories. But, you know, uh, an example of the slipperiness of Doug Wilson that I saw just recently play out in a discussion he was having on Twitter, which is the public town square, that just hit me as like, this is so plainly dishonest and he knows it. Like he winks at the fact. And that's, you know, someone, I, I don't remember how the conversation came up, but, you know, someone said, oh, and this is coming from someone who doesn't believe women should vote. And he responds and his response is, well, how do you square that? So, you know, doesn't say yes or no, but says, how do you square that with the fact that women vote in our church elections? And the response is, and the response evaded his deflection, so good job. But the response was, look, don't be coy. You believe in headship voting, one family, one vote. And so the head of the family is the husband. And that's who votes in your church elections. And he says, exactly. So I deny men the vote as well, because families vote. Not men, right? And so it, that is so just infuriatingly dishonest when right. some when the accusation is you don't think women in the United States because he wants to apply this to the U.S. as well, uh, like a lot of these Christian nationalists do. You don't believe women should vote. I don't. I I believe families should vote. Women are in families. But who, you know, who, who casts the vote, whatever, who's franchised or enfranchised with the vote. Um, and he, he knows it, but he's so good at the dishonesty of it and even sort of delights in it as a, as a, a game he can play. Right. 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 And what makes it all the more concerning is, is we have, I think people who are, are well-meaning in all of this, who say, you know, well, we ought to give both sides a hearing, right? People who up and uh, there's been so much racist smoke 
surrounding Stephen Wolf. People say, well, you know, he hasn't said anything explicitly racist. You know, I, I think we ought to, you know, examine both sides and, and give it a hearing. And, I, you know, it's that sounds reasonable. Right. But what these people know how to do is talk in such coded language that, you know, without a smoking gun, people are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're being honest and genuine, um, which I think makes their manipulation just that much more effective. And I know that it sounds like I'm saying, well, we just, you know, we shouldn't give people a fair hearing. And that's not exactly what I'm trying to say. Um, but what this means is that we have to be aware of the way that that language can be coded to say certain things without saying them. And there's that whole controversy back with, with Nixon's aide, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, who says, yeah, of course we're talking about black people when we're talking about, you know, the war on drugs or, or, or you know, urbanization or any of these things. That, of course that's what we're talking about. Uh, but we can't come right out and say that. And then you have this whole group of people in the middle who say, well, they didn't say anything explicitly racist, right? They're willing to give the benefit of the doubt to people who are clearly dishonest and what do you do with that in the middle, right? Like how, how do you how do you work with people who say, well, I think we ought to, you know, at least hear them out. And they're not saying anything explicitly racist. They're not saying anything explicitly sexist. Um, and the people who are deeply racist, deeply sexist know this. They know that they can code their language and get away with it until they're caught with an undeniable photo from, uh, you know, uh, the basement of a Christian school. <laughs> um, it just seems like it's a, a very unlevel playing field and they know that and they exploit it. Um, and it makes, on one hand, it makes us sound like we're wild conspiracy theory nuts saying, no, 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 look, look how racist and sexist it is, <laughs> you know, and only find vindication after, you know, incredibly deep digital sleuthing. All that, you know, I'm presenting a problem without a solution, um, but it is something that I'm concerned about. You know, the, the conscience of, of generally good-natured, well-meaning people being taken captive by clearly dishonest people and not knowing really what to do about that. Yeah. Well, I think the solution is literacy. Like yes. The solution is, is getting good at detecting it and being um, – or refusing to let people continue – to tell the same lies in the same ways, right? Right. So, you know, it's not like one simple trick kind of solution, but I don't, you know, that's that's all there is for it. But so right. so yeah, we're at this this moment. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just say it just it means that we have to work two to three times as hard find two to three times as much evidence uh, to support what we're trying to say all the while they can blabber as much as they want in this coded language um it just i don't know i'm, I'm complaining it feels unfair <laughs> and it is unfair right and, and they know that and they exploit it which is you know why we're doing this podcast and we thank you for your support yeah. well the thing the thing about reactionary politics including up to fas fascism but reactionary politics in general the goal is, is never to convey factual information. The goal is to get an emotional response, right? And so, and you can do that with all sorts of contradictory arguments and with, you know, dissembling and deception uh, and, and so on. 
And so, yeah, again, the only, the only thing for it is to expose that for what it is. And, you know, there is, there is an element, you know, backing out a little bit about this moment, there's an element of people are willing at this moment to cut out a cord once it's obvious that he's the, you know, the wrong kind of racist. He's explicitly racist. He's using, <laughs> you know, he's using the N word on his Twitter profile or his Twitter account. Right. Right. And so they're right. willing to cut him out for the sake of protecting the broader project. And, you know, a lot of the people who have written about this, including, um, including Rod Dreher, will say, you know, and including Alistair Roberts will say, you know, on the one hand, I have no particular investment in the Christian nationalist project, but I'm fine with it. Right. Right. Or so even, long as it's not explicitly racist. Right. Right. And so that, you know, that's where we want to be careful about identifying. I mean, it's, it's good that there are lines in the sand that even our, you know, my esteemed conservative colleague across the aisle will not cross, right? That's good that that line is there because that's doing important societal work, right? If, if you know, we haven't even talked about Ye and his, expli- you know, mainstreaming of, you know, I love Hitler, I don't like the word evil next to Nazis, I love Nazis and Jews, uh, I deny the Holocaust, um, you know, that Alex Jones appearance was uh, 10 times worse than anyone in the media has made it out to be um, because it, it was just explicit Holocaust denial at several points, not just a attention seeking like, you know, like a high school sophomore who learns that you can say, well, actually, Hitler was a very compelling speaker just to get negative attention. Like it was it was right. that, but it was not just that. Right. Right. Um, which in, in some ways. The, the fact that, that comes two weeks or whatever after the whole Thomas Accord thing, like it, it, speaking of the, the normalizing of what had been sort of rightly relegated to outside the bounds of acceptable discourse and then the Overton window following that and, sh- and shifting. Um, right. And then who is willing to, for the sake of the conservative project, cut out, you know, cut out Thomas Accord, cut out Stephen Wolf, cut out Yay, <laughs> to the degree that he had, you know, come in as a as a conservative voice. But you know, ba- Babylon B was all over him once he had his sort of conversion moment and he released the Jesus is King album. Um, and he's still uh, tied for top position in the billboard charts for gospel music, right? He's influential in these conservative Christian circles. Yay is. And so it, it is, it is a, on, you know, on the one hand, you want those, those, those third rail topics to remain third rail. You want that line in the sand to be there. And so, as a as a strategic thing we should reward those especially those on the you know closer to the right who do police that boundary right, right. um but on the other hand that we cannot be sort of lulled into letting that lend credibility to 
the the polite version of the same project. Yes, which is what Stephen Wolf's case for Christian nationalism is. Right, and I think Bradley Mason he, he took a lot of flack for this in the days following um, this. He, you know, he he was not going to share. Rod Dreher's article. He was not going to share Kevin DeYoung's article and say, you know, we've been, we've been calling this stuff out, you know, for what it is for years now. And he has, I mean, he's, he's been Mm -hmm. just extremely diligent. He says, I'm not going to promote Christian nationalism light just to, um, just because they're doing the bare minimum of rejecting explicit racism. And, And I think, you know, and he, so he took a lot of flack from that, from people who were sort of on the reasonable right side, we, we, we might call it. Um, but I, I think he's essentially correct. You know, I, and that's the tension, right? From a, from a tactical standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, we might want to say, no, 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 no. Like encourage all of these people as, as much as you can so that they don't slip over the edge. But rather saying, no, like, I am not going to praise people for doing the bare minimum of decency. Um, <laughs> and there, I, I resonate with that as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting place to sit, you know, what, when we determine, okay, well, what do we need to do to be tactically effective and keep as many people from slipping down that slippery slope as possible? And what do we do to actually hold the line uh, in terms of what is good and right and decent and proper? Um and I, and I think this is where too. One of the things we haven't really talked about in all of this is how the conversations that we're having, even here, are are very white, right? Because if we listen to our black brothers and sisters, they've been warning us about these people forever and saying. Stop talking about them. Stop platforming them. Stop quote tweeting them to dunk on them. Like they're explicitly racist. And so, you know, and now you have all of these, you know, enlightened white people saying, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that this was such a racist movement. And our black brothers and sisters, we have been telling you all along um, that that's exactly what this is. Right. And so, in all of that, I think about, you know, from a tactical standpoint, yeah, I should praise the Rod Dreher article for, for sounding reasonable. But what does that say to our black brothers and sisters who have been saying this all along? Like, you know, I, I think it's, it, it adds insult to injury in a way um, to do that. And so I'm torn. I understand the tactical advantage of it. Um, but from a principle standpoint, uh, I think I understand where Bradley and, um, you know, some of these others uh, are coming from who are saying, We've been trying to tell y'all. Um, there, there's a strategic element, both on the right and among the, you know, what has been called the intellectual dark web, the sort of heterodox sphere. Um, this this strategy, the anti-vax movement has used this really strongly. You know, all of the COVID skepticism, COVID skeptic movement has has used this. Uh, you know, this sort of strategy of love bombing. Right. When someone, you know, I would say that the same thing is happening with um, the anti-trans movement and its embrace of 
detransitioners is using this yes. strategy as well. And the strategy is love bombing, right? Like you find right. someone who is willing to def- defect apparently from the other side and then you – just every criticism that you would have had yesterday just drops away and you bring them on and you tell them how brave they are and how great they are and what a, an important thing that they're doing. And, you know, we've seen a, a lot of uh, public figures get sort of pulled into, you know, I'm COVID skeptical to, you know, all the way down the pipeline to now, you know, everything is a, is a conspiracy and it was uh, grown in a lab by Obama and, and so on and so on through this strategy of love bombing. And I don't think it can work in reverse. And by that, I mean, I think that there's something about the nature of the left project that that kind of craven, disinterested, like post-truth uh, approach, just it, it, it doesn't work in the same way. Like you can't use love bombing as a strategy for a, a movement that is genuinely built on solidarity and empathy. You just can't. It does not work. But you can't build a movement or you can't build a movement based around those values on something like love bombing. Like even if Rod Dreher does something that I I say in the moment this is the morally right thing to do or the politically right thing. If he stumbles onto a right idea and embraces it, I still cannot build a movement with Rod Dreher. And it would take years of repentance and him showing up, doing the work, really, you know, very clearly dealing with what his attacks on the LGBT community, what his um, flirting with fascism uh, in the Orban government, you know, he, that stuff you have to work through. And so, and I think, I think, and I, I, I know that this would in, this would anger to no end some of my, you know, conservative critics, but I think it is, more difficult work morally and even in a, in the sense of discipline being a disciplined person it's more difficult to do uh movement building and coalition building on the left because because we have these commitments right these moral commitments that's exactly that's what i was going to say the, the, the difference is we have principles and they are Entirely utilitarian. We have principles and they have goals. So anything that supports their goal goes, right? They're willing to platform and and lie and whatever. And we have baseline principles that we're not willing to violate. They're purely utilitarian in their their method. Um, And there are just certain things that we won't do even – if it would be effective, and I think sometimes we get criticized for that, right? Because we're not win at all costs, and they are, which presents a challenge, right? Because if you're if you're playing a game and you've got one side that's trying to play by some basic rules and principles, and the other side that's willing to do whatever it takes to win, um, it be, it becomes much harder. Um, but I think that's that's exactly what it boils down to. All all that to say, I think even though it's less effective. I'm still willing to stand by doing what's right for the sake of principle, even if it 
is less tactically advantageous, I, I still think that utilitarianism um, and justify the means type ethics are not worth embracing even when circumstances are dire. Now, maybe that's a privileged position, um, but that's this is still something that I, I, I try really hard. Um, I was taken to task privately, um, but in a way that I really appreciate, um, by one of uh, the, the black followers, you know, mutual followers that I have. He's, he was like, why are you promoting this? Why are you talking about this? Why are you giving this space? We've been saying this all along. Why aren't you instead promoting the good, positive work coming from um, black people and, and it, you know, maybe do some, some soul searching and introspection, um, that it, it's, it's worth it to, to do things right, even if it's less effective. I don't know. That's my sermon. Right. Well, it, you know, it's, it's, in some ways, it's a real, the, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house situation, right? Like, um, but on the other hand, sometimes the master's tools can, are pretty good at dismantling, right? But that, that does, you know, like, like I've said a couple of times, that does um, really flow into the kind of broad patterns that the last, co- the last few decades of development on the Christian right have shown because there's been a, um, a sort of splitting off of the Christian right into a separate social movement from evangelicalism rather than a either controlling or even minority movement within evangelicalism. And those are somewhat, those are the fault lines that we're discussing here, right? Like I think it, you know, Kevin DeYoung is a conservative evangelical and is policing those boundaries and the, the Christian far right is looking at the, you know, gospel coalition and John Piper and Kevin DeYoung now and saying, oh, they've become liberals when right. clearly right. they have not become liberals. But, you know, they it's it's because they are in a lot of ways outside of uh, evangelicalism. And so, you know, a, a handy litmus test. We we were all over handy litmus tests for our first um, couple of episodes. Like, who do we mean by the Christian right? I think another handy one is who talks about Big Ava. You know, Ava right. E V A, but Big Ava, both capitalized. Like, if you're talking about Big Ava, you're probably that means that you're outside of actual evangelicalism, and you're looking in from the right. 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 Now, there's a there's a few characters now that I you know I. I feel like for a while, Neil Shenvey would have talked about Big Eva. Um, Andrew Walker might have talked about Big Eva, you know, and they've been sort of forced now to take a side with what, what might be considered Big Eva because the Overton window has moved because of this book, right? So there's, there's some people who are sort of flirting with the edge. Um, mm-hmm. so, so some of those lines are a little clearer, but yes, um, we've got people who are, I think one of the ways that has made sense to me is, people who still believe in classical liberalism as a concept, as a valuable ideal worth preserving and those who are willing to um, 
do away with classical liberalism for the sake of a, a Christian nationalist far right project. Like we don't care so much right. about democracy. We care about instituting Christian nationalism or whatever we want to call it. So this, and I think you've talked about it before, the difference between like the liberal right classically and the illiberal right. Um, and mm -hmm. I feel like in, since we've started this podcast, not this episode, but the project, um, that line has hardened. Um, and we're seeing people now line up on, yeah, I'm willing to do away with democracy. I'm willing to do away with classical liberalism for the principle of, you know, establishing a Christian nation, however we d define that. And those who are saying, no, I, I, I still think like I'm very conservative, but I still believe in the idea of liberalism and, you know, individuals having a right and a vote and, and, you know, sort of the marketplace of ideas. Right. Well, you know, for the, for the second, second half of our episode, kind of tra <laughs> tracing the, the, as this is developed, right. Uh, there, I think that there are two, two lines of development that have really led to this sort of splitting off of the far right as an entity outside of evangelicalism rather than as driving evangelicalism. And, you know, half of that is sort of church focused de uh, developments, right? Within, you know, the movements within evangelicalism or, uh, or sort of ministry focuses, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other half is just sort of the broader politics. And in both cases, it's led to this cleaving. But, you know, coming out of the Reagan years into the 90s, right, you have the 88 presidential election, which is pretty much in the bag for, you know, then Vice President George H.W. Bush. But very early in that primary season, Pat Robertson is running, right? And right. If, if you'll recall, Pat Robertson decided that God wanted him to run for office because do you remember this? Because he prayed away a hurricane, right? He prayed that this hurricane, he rebuffed it on air on his, on his TV show. He, he prayed and rebuked the hurricane and drove it away from the Florida coast. Um, and it did it. And the day or, you know, in the hours or day after he prayed it, it, changed course and veered back out in the, into the Atlantic. And then he took credit for it. And then the next day it veered back toward the United States and hit the Northeast and just did all sorts of damage to uh, cities in the upper Northeast. So the hurricane did hit and actually was very damaging to property and people died. But he still took credit for the fact that initially he pushed it off, of course, to not hit uh, – Florida and his, you know, his, his conservative listeners. And then it punished the, the liberals in the Northeast. So, you know, what more sign could Pat Robertson need that God is on his side and wants him to run for office? Right. Uh, and so, and so he runs and he does very well. And it's really interesting looking at historians talk about the 88 um, primary because they want to credit a lot. Like he sort of brought, evangelicalism and the possible electoral success of evangelicals into the the president into presidential politics in a way that it hadn't been before but if you, if you actually look at the numbers like he did not 
do great. He won the straw poll, but then lost the primary. So, you know, the straw poll is, you know, several months before the Iowa straw poll. So several months before the, the first primary, they, they hold a, a, at the uh, Iowa State Fair, this very small, dedicated group of uh, enthusiastic, you know, Republican voters does a very small like mini primary that's not that's not binding in any way and he wins the straw poll and so there's this moment where it looks like he's going to be successful and then the actual primaries happen and george hw bush just runs away with it and it's not even really a competition and so he's he's sort of an afterthought and i think that attempts to build him up as this highly that like that this primary challenge was highly influential in uh, presidential or electoral politics is kind of overblown, but it does show that, especially for conservative Christians, it it kind of demonstrates the degree to which they, you know, today there are all of these hagiographies of Reagan, but even at the time he was not seen as sufficiently conservative. No Republican president until Trump maybe has been seen as sufficiently conservative by the Christian far right. It, they're just they're always displeased, right? Even with you know American hero Ronald Reagan, even with um, you know born again evangelical George W. Bush, it's there. It's always they're always rhinos. They're always you know Republicans in name only, insufficiently conservative, bowing to the to the libs, and so there's always been this sort of market on the on the very far right for an outsider candidate and then Donald Trump in a lot of ways succeeds in you know Pat Buchanan also with his with his failed run kind of captures that same energy and then Donald Trump captures that same energy but then he wins and and ha- has this has this um, amazing ability to both be the president and hold all the power but still cast himself and therefore his supporters as on the outside and as unfairly, you know, targeted and unrepresented by the system, right? And so it becomes a, a just a, an engine for focused resentment. Right, right. Um, and even Donald Trump is not sufficiently conservative in and of himself, right? There's lots of talk about how he, he's not our pastor in chief. We, we, we don't like his personal, you know, his personality or... or all of this, but he's willing to give us, and we've talked about this. He's willing to give us the judges. He's willing to give us the policies. Right. It's sort of there, there's this mutual usefulness between the two. Trump uh, is using the the evangelicals in the far right to bolster his you know personal power, and they're using him to get the the policies and the judges that they want. Um, and so it's sort of this symbiotic relationship between them. Uh, but you're right that. Throughout this whole thing, because the politicians sort of realize that the goals of the far right are actually very unpopular. And this has always been the case, right? If you were to actually run a far right platform, you would lose in a landslide. So you've got all these politicians, Nixon and Reagan and the Bushes, all um, you know, trying to court the right and the evangelicals, uh, while also trying to temper – uh, their extremism to capture the centrists, um, which I think leaves this this contingent on the right always deeply unsatisfied, um, and so that's where you you get the emergence of you know far right groups like the Tea Party, right? Who 
you know, they're, they're less religious, um, but there are more far right conservative political party trying to draw the party to the right um, and unhappy with the sort of the compromise that they see among the, the more moderate Republicans. And the Tea Party becomes one of the harbors that the Christian far right kind of has to run to, especially at a moment where or at a time when the evangelical establishment isn't pushing that far right and is is fairly is fine with the Republican Party as it was and as it had been. Right. Right. And so that that reflects some of the the, the cleavage there. Um, and, you know, and they run to these media figures like uh, like Glenn Beck, right, who was um, <laughs> who had, yeah. had converted to the Church of Latter-day Saints. But evangelicalism isn't doing it for them. But we have someone like Glenn Beck, who's very associated with the Tea Party and very in with uh, in with that. And also, you know, folks like um, like Alex Jones, who's experiencing his rise in the in the 90s and then especially post 9-11. But, you know, even in the 90s is beginning to circulate, you know, in the conspiracy theory milieu. And, you know, but the big the big kind of culture change both worldwide and for the United States that changes post Reagan and into the Bush years and then into the Clinton years is the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the end of the Cold War, right? From the end of World War II, for 50 years, we have this enemy, right? right. And this very specific enemy, and we've talked before about how rhetorically useful it was to have an enemy on the outside that you can explicitly, we're not anti-American, we're not criticizing the president, or you know, we're not criticizing the Democrats or whatever. We're against godless communism. And you know, the president's a little too close to that, right? Like you can be patriotic, but also, you know, associ- also associate your political enemies with um, this outside boogeyman. It's it's very rhetorically effective and ret- rhetorically useful. And then it's gone. And, you know, a a generation of people who had grown up with the Cold War, with the fear of nuclear war, with duck and cover drills, suddenly have no specific external entity onto whom to place their fear. But the fear is still there, right? And so the 90s become this weird, rootless decade for, you know, displaced fear that you can't exactly associate. And so a lot of that goes on goes on Hillary Clinton, right? Like right. I think I don't I don't think that the the cult of H- Hillary Clinton hate builds up without this like vacuum that the fall of the Soviet Union uh, created and this place that we have to we have to be afraid of something. So what's it going to be, right? And that's all through the 90s. That's ev- every you know, every cultural artifact of the 90s is in some way related to this um, need to project our our paranoia and what had been our ability to uh, castigate a, some specific, you know, other, right? Right. And so, you know, the fears of, you know, Bill Clinton and the, the New World Order and the <laughs> – you know, UN peacekeeping troops, you know, that image of a UN peacekeeping troop with the blue helmet that says UN on it. And like, that was a, an image of terror for the right during the nineties. Like, cause any day 
they're going to be in the United States for maybe a you know emergency disaster relief, right? Anytime that there was a natural disaster and Bill Clinton would um, mobilize the National Guard and uh, emergency camps would be set up. It there was cons- there were conspiracies would hatch about how they, oh they're setting up FEMA camps to round up the conservatives and and put us all in camps and take our guns, um, and you know pe- the sightings of you know black unmarked helicopters that are really working for the you know global government and this was constant right like the X Files right. right are maybe the def- you know one of the defining series of the nineties. <laughs> And it's like the, the conspiracy, you know, a little bit about it, a little bit of it is, you know, aliens or monster of the week or whatever. But most of it is the clandestine government. Right. Right. Who's, right. who's covering everything up and actually. And so in a sense, 9-11 comes as this huge relief for uh, people who who needed an, an external enemy to focus on. Right. And so suddenly it's the global war on terror and that becomes this defining thing. But all of that drives a certain um i don't know politics of hostility politics of paranoia and it's it's particularly affecting for uh movements on the right and the other half of that is the right came under the specific focus of you know federal law enforcement federal investigations because of i mean the actual uh spread of you know genuine you know uh, white identity movements, um, Christ, you know, Christian militias, Christian identity movements. You know, you look at someone like Timothy McVeigh, who uh, went and served in uh, the first Gulf War, and uh, was who ne- you know never really uh, fit in, never really made uh, relationships. Was sort of a you know, self-identified uh, white supremacist and falls in with, you know, with these reactionary politics and at a gun show finds a copy of the Turner Diaries, which is a um, conspiracy driven, but also, a, you know, ethno-nationalist. Uh, it's, a you know, a work of fiction, the Turner Diaries, but it's it's about the coming race war. And so it's a thinly veiled, just sort of, you know, paranoid prediction. But then mean, meanwhile... Evangelicalism is developing in almost the opposite direction. Like, what's your recollection of, you know, the significant elements or movements that are going on in evangelicalism across the across the nineties? So, yeah, th- th- there's a couple of things happening during that time. You've got um, Rick Warren, who's who's sort of championing uh, seeker sensitive with his. Uh, Saddleback Church and and the the purpose driven church we get before the purpose driven life and um, he launches this this whole thing and grows this mega church and others will follow in his footsteps Andy Stanley in Georgia um, and others and so this is sort of evangelicalism writ large but it receives its share of criticism right there's a lot of a lot of folks who are further on the right who are criticizing seeker sensitive. Um, on on principle grounds, um, you know, thinking that that's, it's compromising on the gospel for the sake of, of reaching people. Um, it also leads to a decentralization of power, right? You have uh, all of a sudden you've got 
sort of these these pastors who are widely influential, who are not really controlled by any major denominational or ecclesial body. Uh, Rick Warren and Andy Stanley both are associated with Southern Baptist Convention, but are big enough that the Southern Baptist Convention really isn't going to tell them what to do, right? So you have these these growing things. So how do you 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 lose the cohesiveness sort of of um, the evangelical movement? Uh, you've got um, Willow Creek and um, Bill Hybels, right? And Hybels is a little bit more liberal, right? He includes women in his leadership team, um, sort of early on. And so all of a sudden, there's less of a stranglehold on evangelicalism with the emergence of these megachurches and the seeker-sensitive movement. Um, all of that is going on. And so it creates a little bit of tension and friction within conservatism in general, right? Because now you're fighting kind of the war on two fronts. You're fighting the liberalism on, on the government side, but you're also fighting this seeker-sensitive movement, which is – sort of viewed as as compromising to the integrity of of the gospel and the mission um, for the sake of just reaching more people if that makes any sense right well the the theological criticism of seeker sensitive the seeker sensitive approach is that it's it misunderstands who worship is for right right who the worship service is for because right. the idea of seeker sensitive is we will use attractional ministry yes. right, to bring people into the congregation on a Sunday morning because they want either services or entertainment or uh, community, right? So, some quote-unquote felt need. <laughs> right. And then while they're there, we will engage them with you know a 45-minute sermon. And at the end of that, they'll – raise their hand and give their heart to Jesus. Right. Right. Um, and then from there, we'll, we'll move them into small groups and other things where the real discipleship happens. Right. Right. Um, you know, and from the, the very, from a, a very conservative Christian perspective, that misunderstands who the worship service is for. Cause the worship service is not for unbelievers. It's for believers. And specifically for believers to worship God rightly, right? And so that's the sort of official criticism of this. But as, as you say, there are also these kind of structural elements to what seeker-sensitive worship and the kind of stunning success of churches who take on the attractional model, um, what that means for uh, uh, churches more broadly. There's also... A, you know, I mean, it, it was never absent, but this renewed emphasis on the the family structure and the centrality of you know leadership for the man and motherhood for the woman, right? right. And so the the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is established, uh, not technically identical with the Southern Baptist church, but a lot of overlap between the Southern Baptists and CBMW. Um, and they, they release a statement. This is a statement that we have not actually deep dived, um, but called the, the Danvers statement. And, you know, it, it basically just reinforces 
the you know men and women are are not not just different but in many ways opposite right whatever defines masculinity the opposite defines femininity um that you know at, one of the things that they affirm is that that adam was given headship over the human race prior to the fall and not as a result of the fall right because egalitarians had been arguing that um that patriarchy is a result of the fall and therefore christian community can transcend that um as it rejects uh the the effects of sin in the world right and so they explicitly reject that and you know in some cases uh Christian college and seminary uh, employees are required to sign on to the, either the Danvers statement or similar theological statements around things like complementarianism. Um, so that, you know, there, there are shakeups in some of the, um, in some of the seminaries, um, you know, youth groups, we're not new in the nineties, but the youth group culture kind of reaches its Zenith in the nineties. And that along with that comes purity culture and, you know, books like, uh, Josh Harris's I kiss dating goodbye, uh, the whole courtship movement, right. Um, the idea that it might be appropriate to hold hands before you're married, um, but probably not all right to kiss before you're married. And really, ideally, your first kiss will be on your wedding day. Um, but then that you'll just have amazing, mind-blowing sex for the rest of your life if you, if you, you know, True love wait waits. and commit yourself. Yeah. And so, yeah, all, all of that movement is at, at its height uh, during the 90s and into the early 2000s. But then in, in the early 2000s, um, along with the global war on terror and you know finally we have an external enemy and the, the usefulness of that and the growing islamophobia of that era um you get this 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 upgrowth of the you know sort of not just uh not just the sort of like uh limpid complementarianism but like hyper masculinity like men are not just right. to be like leaders in the sense of well i you know i ha work a white collar job and then i come home and i respectfully you know inform my wife what we're having for dinner or whatever like no no that's all sissy stuff i can't worship a jesus i can beat up is what mark driscoll said right so mark driscoll's kind right. of at the head of this but you know you get mma uh, MMA worship, which is also an attractional ministry, ironically enough, like uh, talk about seeker sensitive worship, like Mark, Mark Driscoll is the, the king of, we'll get him in here with entertainment and with, right. uh, promising men, this like power fantasy. So what I think is important to point out through this are, are the threads that remain wholly intact from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, even through today. Um, race explicitly kind of dies down, although you have, you know, the super predator comments from the Clintons in the 90s. Um, you have sort of the uh, response to Obama in the early 2000s. So it doesn't, race doesn't go away, right? But explicitly it, it, becomes more coded. Um, right. What we see an increase during these decades 
um, in response to gay rights and in response to sort of gender hierarchy, of we, as we've talked about with um, Council of Biblical Menhood, Womanhood, feminism, um, and then abortion, right? And abortion sort of as the stand-in issue for feminism um, and women's liberation. And so the drum that gets consistently, but you, you've got um, James Dobson and focus on the family all through uh, the 90s and early 2000s. James Dobson becomes a major uh, voice for the, the Christian right in politics um, in the 90s. Um, and so, you know, in all of this, at least in, in my analysis and, analysis and estimation, is symbolic of anxiety around a, a decaying social order, a perceived decaying social order, um, right? And so you have the, the Christian far right picking these issues, um, gay rights, you know, people who become furious with Obama because early in his campaign says he believes marriage between a man and a woman and then by the time he's out of office um, has repealed don't ask, don't tell. And even today, right, where are the fault lines? Where is the major emphasis among the right? It's gender. Uh, now, it, it's it's not so much women in the workplace, but it's transgender, um, gender identity, and LGBTQ. It, within the past couple of weeks, the House and the Senate both passed the Respect for Marriage Act and uh, – conservatives have gone apoplectic over this, right? Because the majority of both houses approved this um, sort of preemptively because they saw what happened with, with Roe v. Wade being overturned in the courts. And there's this fear that um, gay marriage uh, would be Obergefell, that Obergefell would be overturned. And so they, they pass legislative protection and the, the fury among some of these, not not just far right commentators, even, even what we would call reasonable right um, commentators, over the fact that Rep- Republicans would dare to, to codify um, gay marriage. So something that a majority that, of Republicans favor, right? Right. But th- this has been one red thread that has remained entirely intact from the sixties and seventies all the way through to now. And it's again, I say in, in my estimation, it's anxiety over a perceived deterioration of, of social order. Um, it's indicative of the fact that there's no longer any moral fabric fabric holding the nation together. Um, but I think it's important to point out that this has been one unifying factor that has not changed or even really it hasn't even changed in terms of code. Right. There's still racial anxiety no question, but mm-hmm. nobody's even trying to hide homophobia, right? It, it's still. I mean, the, the, they they do retreat into like religious freedom, right? Yeah, like that, especially in the courts, right? That that becomes the uh, mechanism by which you try to defend. You know, uh, was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, Supreme Court heard oral arguments in this uh, new Colorado case, right? Um, which is an, an absurd case because it's it's all hypothetical, like totally preemptive. Nothing even, 
Nothing even happened. It's just, right. you know, hypothetically, I want to sue. And the Supreme Court <laughs> is like, yes, we can, we can, we can take that up. We can do something with this. Um, right. I think that the the signing of the Res- the Respect for Marriage Act, my honestly, my expectation is that it will be cited in the six three decision by the Supreme Court when they overturn Obergefell, and they'll say, "Look, it's not needed anymore because we've we've handled this." But crucially, the Respect for Marriage Act does not obligate states to perform same-sex weddings. It has reciprocal right. recognition rights, right? And so it's supposed to, it sort of settles, you know, difficult issues around, you know, and it's good. It's good, right? The the content of it, it's easy to kind of dismiss it and say, look, it doesn't even codify Obergefell. Um, it only has reciprocal recognition, but it all, it also does, does some important kind of, you know, back end, um, it, it codifies rights that actually have not been clear, even under Obergefell, around things like um, processing of estates after one partner dies if you get married in a state different than the one you're currently living in. And things like, like it actually it does um, kind of advance some areas. Um, and so it is, it is a genuinely good bill despite not you know giving literally everything in it uh, but again I do think it will be cited when they overturn Obergefell uh, and because what does that do that returns gay marriage to a state's rights issue like abortion to a state's rights issue but what's fascinating it, it, it genuinely took me off guard and I think it took most of us off guard how virulent the response from these kind of moderate conservatives but especially Christian right because right. it's it's the Christian right in particular that is still weird about same-sex marriage to the point that they, they keep saying it even today and not even even today. It's it's like they forgot about gay marriage for a number of years because they were too focused on other things. And this reminded right. them to be mad about it is what it's is what it feels like. Um, right. But I can't I can't tell you how many times I've seen in the last you know three weeks. It's not marriage. It's gay, quote unquote, marriage. Because it's it's marriage. It's gay mirage. Have you I've, seen that? I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it's that. Gay that's mirage. Rid- that's absurd. <laughs> and and it's and so it is this denial of empirical reality. It's denial of literally the facts in front of you, which should not be surprising coming from <laughs> young Earth creationists, anti-vaxxers. Anti-vaxxers. It's a community kind of defined by its impressive capacity to deny demonstrable objective reality. Right. And I th- and I think there's a correlation there, right? When you're trained up to deny the um, just un- unassailable fact of evolution. You know, the unassailable fact of, you know, natural selection with variation leads to evolution. That that trains you also to be able to say, well, those two people aren't actually married. I know that they are married. I know that the state says that they're married, but that's not actually marriage. Because God defines marriage. <laughs> right. And by that, I mean my interpretation of the, the set of uh, texts and the particular way that I uh, entangle them together, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but – but so it's it's fascinating to me because you know the the set of issues that you describe, you know, 
women's liberation and then gender equality and then gender identity, also gay marriage, also, you know, segregation, anti-desegregation. That's 70 straight years of just losing, just losing. Every, right. every cultural issue that you plant your flag on, just losing, right? And the only exception within that that we could point to is abortion because they finally got the Supreme Court majority. They finally got Roe overturned. But you look at the results of this midterm, right? And you know, you don't want right. to draw long-term historical conclusions from a midterm election when you're like three weeks out from it. <laughs> but, this, I mean, the... This is a, a unprecedented or barely precedented. Like this is a, a midterm election that has thrown everything that we think that we know about political science into into question because it it defied every expectation, right? Um, with today, we're recording the day after the Georgia runoff, and so Raphael Warnock uh, retains that seat, which makes Joe Biden the first president since. FDR in 1934, who no senator from his party, who was an incumbent, lost a race during the midterm. First time. There have been two presidents who only one senator lost. But you and you have to go back to, I think, also to FDR for the small number of losses. Like it's such an unprecedented election in our lifetimes, right? Um, and, it, it, you know, we're still struggling to explain that. And, you know, some of it is the Trump effect, like Trump pushed the Republican Party to nominate a bunch of uh, fringe weirdos and they didn't do well. Um, you, you can point, to, you know, you can point to the degree to which Biden being a s sort of visibly, a visibly weak or non-forceful president actually kind of disentangles the party from him because you he's not a quote-unquote strong commander-in-chief. If he's a weak commander-in-chief, then he has a weak relationship to your senator or whatever, right? And the, so maybe that's part of it. Maybe part of it is change, changing demographics, whatever. But a big part of it obviously is – um, Roe being overturned in the months leading up to it, right? Like, why does the out party do well during a midterm? It's because anger is motivating and because you want to kind of punish the party who's in power, right? But who looks like they're in power this year? Right. Is it the Democratic Party who can barely get anything passed because Joe Manchin will be like, actually, um, or... Is it the party who has completely stacked the Supreme Court to the point that Roe gets overturned the year of the midterm? And then um, every state where abortion rights were in any way on the ballot, whether that was through electoral possibilities, whether that was through constitutional reforms, whether that was through um, ballot measures that would have made it illegal in that state, like in every state where it was on the ballot, just Democrats overperformed in those states, Right. Right. And so there's this sense of like, yes, we think it's a big victory that over that Roe was overturned, but also it's the same thing that even pro-life critics of the 
approach of overturn Roe have always said is you return it to a state's rights issue. Well, you're making it harder for poor people to get abortions. You're making people cross state lines more. You're making more people seek, uh, seek abortions outside of the, uh, outside of the medical establishment of those states, but you're not eliminating abortion. Right. And that, is the reality that the pro-life movement has to live with right now is to what is it is it really a victory that's what i'm coming down to is it really a victory to overturn roe it might it seems as though it is not and so it's not just so every single cultural issue on which the christian far right has planted their flag has been loss retreat loss retreat and so you end up with this like kind of fringe, marginalized movement, which on some on one hand might give you cause for relief, right? But on the other hand, is when you have the most potential for danger, extremism, right? Um, for strange new alliances developing, and so on, and so and and so that's what concerns me at this point and what I think is worth watching for. Yeah. So uh, I, there were two points that I kind of wanted to make that, that kind of tie this all together. The first is from a big picture. We've been asking, how did we get here? We sort of started with a picture. We started with January 6th in our first episode, right? Um, and, the, and the things that led to that. And we've been examining the current situation. We, we did this mini series because we wanted to talk about, how did we get to this current cultural moment where racism, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia are, you know, so rampant? And one of the things that we've seen is in many ways, we're exactly where we've always been uh, uh, a fringe right wing, deeply concerned about um, issues of a deteriorating social order as evidenced by racial unrest, as evidenced by feminism and abortion, as evidenced by increased visibility of, you know, gay people seeking rights. Um, we go all the way back to the beginning of this, and those are the very same anxieties that the Christian right 50 and 60 years ago are wailing about. Um, and so in, in many ways, we're not at all different from where we were 50 or 60 years ago. The same issues are, are still animating the right. But the second point I wanted to make is the point that you just made. After 50, 60, 70 years of losses, we're seeing a much more galvanized, extreme minority on the right willing to do more um, and more extreme and and they're not such a small minority that it's not concerning, right? We can look at Stephen Wolf's book and he can advocate for violent revolution and say, okay, even most right-wing people are, are rejecting that as an option. But when we look at what's happening in some of the state legislatures, right, and some of the people who are running for office who are saying that they're refusing to certify election results – unless it's the Republicans. Um, when we look at secretaries of state getting elected, say in Indiana, um, who have been election deniers, um, when we have 
a contingent of people who seem more willing than ever to do whatever it takes to secure power up to and including, it seems, going back to our very first episode, January 6th, instigating political violence and and defending that or at least excusing that or at least sweeping it under the rug, it is still concerning enough to say, here's, here's what's happening. Um, be aware of it because I, I think history shows if you can orchestrate the levers of power such that a that they can be controlled by a minority, it can be very difficult to come back from that. Um, and, and we've talked about things like Orban, right, in in Hungary, and the way that you can create a system that's technically legal, right, through things like gerrymandering, through things like legislatures. Um, coming before the Supreme Court very soon, if it hasn't already, is a case uh, from North Carolina, I believe, um, where they're trying to take a very strict reading of the Constitution saying that only state legislatures uh, have the power to determine how federal elections will be run in those states. And in very conservative states. Right. And not courts. Right. right, To to leave the courts out. Um, Because what we've seen, as, as you alluded to, states where the population had a say over what happens with abortion, overwhelmingly rejected abortion restrictions. But in states where legislatures, and this gets back to all the way what happened with with Paul Weyrich and and these others, if you have these legislatures who are controlled by an extreme minority, all of a sudden, they can control the levers of power such that the voice of the majority, even if it's overwhelming, can be silenced because they have orchestrated the levers of power so that that majority doesn't get a say, then we, right. we find ourselves in a much more concerning situation where perhaps you know you have somebody who wins the vast majority of the electoral vote, popular vote, that's the word I'm looking for, um, but we'll never see the results of that because this, this minoritarian contingent has orchestrated it, that that doesn't matter. Uh, and that, that, that is something to be worried about. And I think that is a very real concern, um, and that doesn't even get into the, the whole violent side of it. Right. So um, per- perhaps to close, because I think we've made the point, right, that this is kind of a time of flux for these boundaries and, and how we understand these groups and the groups, how the groups relate to one another and where those lines are drawn. So it's a time of, it's a time of flux and um, – starting with the 90s but ramping up and and certainly today we have this intensification of the of the far right as they have felt less and less in line with any major party including the Republican party until Trump gives them a real belief that they can retake the party and now that's kind of in question at the moment right um and the same thing related to the church right evangelicalism and the, the sort of institutions even the historic institutions within evangelicalism, whether they can wrest control of those. Um, but I, I want to close with a, a quote from that I think is interesting and worth, worth talking about more maybe at a later date because it's in some ways counterintuitive, but a, a quote from Francis Fitzgerald's The Evangelicals. And she says that in, in 2009, Rick Warren declared the Christian right dead. 
He was correct in the sense that the Christian right was no longer a movement or even an independent entity with say over evangelicals as it had been for 30 years. Its remnants survived only by making alliances with groups more powerful than themselves. And then she talks about uh, aligning with the conservative coalition of Catholic bishops um, with, with uh, the, the embrace of Glenn Beck and the Tea Party. Uh, but I think that we particularly see this today and think about who, you know, what dangerous, more powerful groups and individuals the Christian far right is willing to align themselves with today. We mentioned Orban, but think about James Lindsay. Think about yay, denying the Holocaust. And like I think that's that's the thing to watch for. Who what more powerful groups are they willing to align themselves with to hold on to or even grab more power? Well, I think with with that closing line, we close out this particular mini-series on how did we get here. Uh, it's not the end of the podcast. Uh, we'll continue diving into the Christian far right, and we'll have other series coming up. Um, I guess I should have asked you this in advance. Is, are we taking a break for the holidays before we <laughs> come back? Yes. In yeah, we, next year? I'm hoping okay. we can do. I'm hoping we can do a couple of Twitter Spaces during the during the holidays. Maybe impromptu. Maybe you know. Maybe we'll plan some guests. We'll see. But look, look for us in the new year with, you know, regular release schedule of regular episodes and then some Twitter spaces in between. We're looking at how we can turn those Twitter space recordings into audio podcast releases. Um, Twitter doesn't make it super easy. And who knows if Twitter will still exist in the new year? Will it make it to 2023? Yeah. Well, we shall see. <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, we are... Uh as always, grateful for uh, our listeners, grateful for our supporters, those who regularly comment and share, those who contribute financially on Patreon, those who interact with us on the Discord. Um, you, know, we, you know, We're thrilled that there are at least one or two of you out there who are also interested in the things that we're interested in um, and, and give us the, the time and the attention and the engagement and interaction. Um, uh, we hope you have, uh, if we don't see you before then, a uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.